From foster care to landing a career. According to the National Foster Parent Association, Charles Loring Brace started the foster care movement due to the large number of immigrant children and orphans sleeping on the streets of New York City in 1857. Over the years, it has been transformed from ministry outreach to a government-led social support system. Today, more than approximately 400,000 children are in the foster care system in the United States. More than 50% of the children in the system are from diverse and underserved communities. Each year, more than 200,000 children age out of foster care due to turning 18, 21, or finishing high school, depending on the state. Without family support or a plan, sadly, many fall victim to poor outcomes, including getting trapped in human trafficking. Foster care may be where one starts in life, but it does not define a person's destiny or their journey to greatness. Welcome to the Diversity Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Audra Jenkins, joined by a member of my Ron Side Equality, Diversity and Inclusion, or Ready Crew, Floss Agri. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Tana M. Session, CEO and founder of TanaMSession.com, a certified women minority business enterprise with more than 20 years of human resources experience. Dr. Session specializes in cultural engineering, facilitated experiences, and leadership and organizational development. She is the best-selling author of Get Your, Li- Get Your Career Life in Order. Tana is recognized as a media contributor and has been a contributing writer for Forbes.com, BlackEnterprise.com, and has been featured in Huffington Post, Essence Magazine, and a variety of television, syndicated radio, and podcast shows. Dr. Sessions is highly recognized as an award-winning international speaker, best-selling author, and certified executive-level performance strategist. Welcome, Tana. Thank you so much, Audra. So glad to be here. Floss, thank you. So let's just jump right in. So we're just beyond excited to have you on the show. I, we've been, I've been following you for some quite some time. You know, I definitely got my girl crush on. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> I love the work you do and the space you occupy. And I think the biggest thing I love about you is your authenticity. I mean, there's no two different versions of you. What we see out there in the public is the real you. And I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, that would be hard to keep up. <laughs> it, it, tell me about it. I get it. I totally get it. I cannot imagine. So, you know, one of your famous taglines is from foster care to fabulous. Are you able to share a little bit about your time in foster care and how it shaped you into the phenomenal woman you are today? Yeah, definitely. So I was born into the foster care system. So my mom was a young single teenage mother and was placed in a home for unwed parents, unwed mothers rather. And as a result, I was immediately put in foster with a foster family from birth until about three and a half, almost four years old. So I have some memories of the family. And, uh, you know, you think about those first four years of your life. If you have kids, you know, those are very formative years. So this is the family that raised me, right? They heard my first words and potty trained me and saw me take my first steps. So definitely in terms of that experience, you know, holding a special place in my heart. And, you know, fortunately, I was reunited with my maternal grandfather. Uh, He was the one who got me out of foster care when I was just shy of four years old, uh, because at the time he had remarried and had younger kids that he had with his new wife and was moving from New York to South Carolina. And he knew my mother still wasn't prepared at that time to take on the responsibilities of motherhood. And so he's the one who got guardianship of me and moved me to South Carolina with his family. Wow. How powerful is that? I mean, I just, you know, I can't imagine, you know, 
the trajectory there. But I do know that, you know, you are definitely a success story. And, um, you know, I definitely think that, you know, that move definitely, I know you have a special place in your heart for your grandfather for doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I failed to mention, I've, uh, sometimes I forget this fact, but it's, it's a keen fact, is that the foster family that took me in was actually a white family. So I'm black African-American woman. And they took in this little black baby, knowing that they weren't going to be able to adopt her because my mother did not sign over her parental rights. And, you know, again, just open their arms and home and heart to me. Oh, that's phenomenal. Thank you for that, adding that. That made my little heart tug. <laughs> so, you know, that leads me to our next question. You know, we hear in the news more than often than not, you know, how the foster care system is broken. And unfortunately, there are people out there who take advantage of that system. The children who the system who was created to protect are sometimes left to suffer unimaginable abuse. If you could help reform the foster care system, where would you start? I think in first and foremost is um, reviewing the oversight of it and, you know, who's in control of it in each state or each county even, because I think it definitely starts with leadership. I understand that, you know, the social workers caseload is, is tremendous. And we've heard about some horrific conditions with kids in foster care, some losing their lives at the hands of their foster parents because it was just no oversight. They were too busy to go do their regular visits or they didn't pay attention to the signs. Um, they were quickly on to the next case. And I think, you know, it is, to me, it's mission work. So the right people have to be in it for the right reasons. You're not going to make a lot of money. You won't get rich being a social worker or working in foster care. At least you're not supposed to. That's not what you're in it for. So to me, I think that's where it starts. And then secondarily is looking at who are the parents, these foster parents that are suddenly motivated to take in foster children, understanding what is their motivation and ensuring that you're keeping up and that they remain motivated. It's not just about a check that they're receiving, right? This is a human life that they're responsible for. Someone's parent have, you know, either voluntarily or involuntarily placed them into foster care. And the goal is for that child to be in a home where they be taken care of and loved and supported. And, you know, to me, the first signs of that not happening needs to be quickly addressed and resolved. Wow, that's very thoughtful. I appreciate that. I think that, you know, one of the things I think that would help is if we paid social workers better, you know, even though I know they're not in the in it for the money, they're in it because that's their heart and passion. I think social workers, teachers, people that serve our children, I feel like they should be compensated, you know, as professionals. Just like teachers. Yeah, just like teachers. I mean, I think they need to be considered that. I think the other part of it is because the system is overwhelmingly underfunded and under-resourced, maybe perhaps also look at, you know, could we get more funding or lobby for more funding to have the resources, to have the oversight that you talked about? I think that would be, you know, impactful as well. Yeah. I mean, like you said, there's 400, it's almost a half a million kids that are in foster care. That's significant. That's a significant part of the population that should not be ignored. Exactly. Well, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. So someone, you know, on the outside looking in, you know, they may only see the success of your career, not the hard work, the sweat, and sometimes tears along the way. You know, what keeps you motivated to keep moving forward, even in the midst of this triple pandemic we're in? We're living in with COVID-19 on one, one leg. We've got like a three-legged stool, social justice reform in the middle leg, and then on the other leg, this very divisive societal climate. You know, so what keeps you motivated to keep moving forward? Because this has got to be a very different time than we've seen in, in many years past. 
Oh, it definitely is. It's definitely the trifecta, right? And no one saw it coming, myself included. You know, I had to do a huge pivot in my business back in, you know, spring of 2020. But Audra, all I see are opportunities. I see opportunities for us to reinvent ourselves, reinvent our businesses. I see opportunities for us to show up as uh, decent human beings for people who look like us and who don't look like us. I see it as an opportunity for us to do the right thing for the future generation, right? When I think about my son, who's 25, he's a millennial, borderline Gen Z. When I think about Gen Zs and Gen Alpha, who's coming after them, you know, I want the world to be a better place for my kids and grandkids and great grandkids. I don't want them to look back at my generation or the one before and say, how did you let this happen? Why didn't you do anything? You're smart people, right? So to me, we have an opportunity to take accountability and also responsibility. And I'm excited by the work that I'm seeing with the clients I'm working with, these organizations and in different industries, including federal and state government that are having this awakening, right? And a new level of awareness and having these courageous conversations in the workplace in ways they never have before. And I'm just so excited to be a part of it because I'm like, that's why I got into this space of diversity, equity, and inclusion is to have these conversations with people have been shy and scared to do so for so long. But after 2020, it hit a smack dab in the face. We were all sitting home at the same time watching the same thing happen with George Floyd. We couldn't ignore it. And I was like, this is a great opportunity to change the narrative. So that's what I'm excited about. That is so powerful. You know, I, I think about, you know, our own internally within Ronstadt, we've had those courageous conversations. Of course, our team has led that with our leadership team, but also, you know, people were dealing with a lot of trauma, you know, in 2020. I mean, there's a lot of trauma that to unpack there. And if we don't lean into some level of humanity and sympathy and not sympathy, but empathy, you know, we are lost, I think, as a society, as humanity in general. So I'm so glad you said that it's an opportunity to to do better. And I hope we yeah show up different. <laughs> show up different. Exactly. I hope we show up different. All right. I'm going to pass it off to Floss, who's going to ask you a few questions as well. Floss? Thanks so much, Audra and Tana. Thank you for the nuggets. Uh, very insightful. Thank My you. Question, oh, yes. Thank you. My question is about your book. So in your book, Get Your Career Life in Order, you talk about discovering your why when embarking on a career search or change, which I think is so crucial to longevity. But from where you sit, why is this exercise such an important first step in the process? Because it should be your North Star. If you don't know what your why is in any life scenario, you know, why am I doing this? Why am I motivated or interested in doing this and digging deep and doing that internal exercise? Then any little thing will sway you off your path. So, you know, it's the saying that if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for everything. Well, if you don't have your why, uh, then you're going to go across this life of yours, your career with no navigational star. So I like to have my North Star. I like to know what I'm working towards. This is my why. Even when I'm tired, exhausted, angry, upset, hungry, depressed, <laughs> sad, or happy, I know that that North Star is going to keep me focused and motivated. So I think it's important to do that exercise um, you know, at different points in your career because your star is going to change based on where you are in your level of maturity and your level of experience and even qualifications, even in terms of your personal relationships, right? You have to identify what is your North Star that's keeping you in that relationship because there are going to be times you're upset with that person. That North Star has got to be there to hold it together and keep you in the point of where you want to stick and stay. Same thing with your career. 
something's got to be pointing you in that direction and doing this exercise helps you to figure that out so that you know what's motivating your feet hit the floor, be it a virtual workroom or a real life in office workroom, workplace rather, you know why you're doing it every day. Because every day is not going to be rosy, right? You want to hit milestones and barriers, et cetera, but you want to have something that's really helping you understand like, this is my why, this is why I'm here, this is why I'm doing it. Wow. I'm just, I'm reflecting on that great, great tip, staying focused on that North Star, knowing what that is, staying anchored in that. I felt that. Thank you for that. Going further to talk about your book, you also touch on unconscious bias and how that may uh, derail certain people's, their career aspirations. When it comes to your clients, how are you advising them to be aware that we all have bias, but we have to find ways to recognize and address the ones that may cause barriers to applicants that are diverse? How do you manage that? Yeah, this is one of my favorite conversations that I have with my clients, actually, because I level set by saying we're all guilty of it, present company included, right? So none of us are exempt or better than the other. But we have to understand what are unconscious bias. And that's what I help them really understand. It's like these are these spontaneous judgments that our brain puts on as a filter. It thinks it's helping us, right, to make decisions very quickly. But really, in a lot of ways, it's a hindrance because these spontaneous judgments are driven by our attitudes and our stereotypes. And those are driven by our cultural beliefs, our experiences, our exposure or lack of exposure to others, even the media, social media, all of those things influence these spontaneous judgments, attitudes and stereotypes. And so I help them understand, you know, by using imagery, words even to say, hey, when you hear the word pilot, what's the first image that comes to mind? Usually it's white man. Okay, but they're black female pilots, right? (laughs) You know, the same thing with an image. If you see an image of someone with a hijab on, what is the first thing that comes to mind when you see this person? Okay, well, if that person is a candidate, are you going to let that be a barrier for you to entry for this individual, right? Because they don't look like you or look like what you expect based on paper or based on a voice on a phone. So those are the things I think we have to be able to, and even for our own selves, be able to reflect and find out how our unconscious and implicit bias causing us to make these snap judgments, reactionary, spontaneous judgments about people, places, or even situations that is not leveling the playing field and causing barriers of entry for marginalized people. Because everyone's impacted by bias, but when we think about the workplace and the clients that I work with, this is what we're talking about, the entry point for marginalized employees. Thank you. I can definitely feel your passion in that and can see you coming through that, the authenticity in terms of you leading your clients. Working in this space with your clients, I'm sure, you know, you just didn't wake up, right? And and you're (laughs) there. So at what point in your journey did you find that intersection of your purpose and your passion? Ooh, that's a good question. So in the beginning of my bio, you said I've been in HR for over 20 years. So this year actually will be my 31st year in HR as an HR practitioner, started out as an admin assistant and grew all the way up to be a chief human resource officer for different companies. But it was at a point where I hit a wall in my career and all the things that I thought I wanted, all of the things that I worked really hard for against all odds, because oftentimes I was the only one who looked like me sitting around the table with executives. I hit the wall and I remember waking up and telling my husband one day, I said, I don't want to wake up and be 50 years old and hate my life. I see this in the workplace all the time when people come talk to me about their miseries. And I was like, I don't want to be that person. (laughs) 
And so I had to make a change and I had to have an honest conversation with myself, my family and talk about, you know, what is my passion? Why did I get into HR and what's missing? Right. And so doing that exercise again, understanding my why helped me identify what were the things about HR that really drove and motivate me every day. If I could do it every single day, this is what I would do. And I had to design the life and the career and the business around that. And so that's why I can work seven days a week, 23 hours a day, and it doesn't even feel like work. Whereas when I was in corporate, if I worked over 40 hours, it was daunting. It was exhausting. I couldn't wait for the weekend. Now I don't even know when the weekend's here. I don't pay attention to the days of the calendar because I'm just that passionate about what I do. And I know my purpose has been tied to that because it tapped into something much more deeper than I ever would have been able to tap into um, within the walls of corporate America. And it allowed me to show up as my true authentic self, which gave me a whole different level of empowerment around the work that I do. Thank you. Very insightful. Thinking more regarding your book, Tana, you spend quite a bit of time in the book talking about the critical role our personal brand actually plays in our career. You state that it's your calling card, you know, what you're known for, how people experience you. So for people listening, because this is front and center for, for a lot of people, what tips do you have for our audience on how they can start to improve upon their own personal brand? Yeah, so when I'm working with my clients on developing their personal brand, I draw this this diagram where it's two circles with an overlapping piece in the middle. And I tell them the one on the left is how you view yourself. The one on the right is how others view you. And the piece in the middle that overlaps is your personal brand. These are where the two intersect. And what we have to do is really be able to be honest with ourselves and be open to honest and candid feedback about how others view us. Because we have this image in our minds, whether it's a physical image of how we appear, with our hair, our makeup, our dress, the way we carry ourselves, the cadence of our voice, the tone of our voice, et cetera. All these things are your personal brand, how you appear in writing, when you write emails or communicate with others. To be able to get feedback from people that you trust that will give you honest feedback, not everyone who loves you, right? So you have to be willing to go outside that comfort zone. Find out from them what their impression is of you. And that's where you're going to be able to find out where there are gaps, where there are things that you are definitely doing well, based on what you think is your brand versus what others feel is your brand and how they experience you. And then you'll be able to understand what areas you need to focus on because we don't need to fix everything. Some things we're probably nailing and getting really, really good at. But there are going to be, honestly, some areas that we are, no matter where you are in your profession, we can all improve upon. And your personal brand is your calling card. It's the thing that's going to open doors for you. It's the thing I tell people, you want people to be able to say nice things about you or good things about you when you're not in the room to be able to represent yourself because they know your brand, they know the quality of your work, they trust you, they know you, they like you. You have these sponsors and advocates in rooms that you don't even know exist. I'm always surprised when people tell me, oh, I've heard your name before. And I'm like, wow, my name is being spoken in rooms I haven't even entered yet. Thank you, Lord, right? Because your brand is out there and it's representing you. So I think it's so important, no matter where you are in your career. And I've coached people coming straight out of college up to people over 50 years old with as much experience as myself that have really had to do a revisit of understanding what that brand is and how to finesse it in a way that really is authentic and long-lasting. Thank you. Authentic and long-lasting. I like that. Audra, I'm going to next pass it on to you. Thanks so much, Floss. Oh, that was powerful. I mean, that gave me chills right there, Tana. Thank you for that. (laughs) 
The authenticity. I love that. And long lasting. That was great. You know, I'm going to switch gears and talk about one of your other books, The Little Book of Motivation and Inspiration. I can tell you when I read this quote, it just so resonated with me. And the quotes goes, critics are oftentimes those who fear change and success in their own lives and may not understand your journey. Pay no attention to the noise. Just move forward and prove yourself right. This is so true and so powerful. I can't tell you how you think, you know, as you advance in your career, and I know you've been here, Tana, you go as you move in your career, not everybody celebrates your success. I mean, they just don't. And what I respected most about you is that you really do care about leading by example and you live your life really unapologetically. Why do you think that, especially for women, as you elevate in your career, that more people are waiting to criticize and try to dim your shine? Yeah, it's unfortunate, but it's so true. Yeah, let's focus on women. I think because oftentimes we're one of few, right? When you think about, like I shared with my experience in, in corporate, you know, being the only one who looked like me, sometimes only woman, sometimes only person of color, sometimes only woman of color, that makes us even that much more marginalized, you know, an anomaly in a lot of ways. So for all women, I think we have to be able to understand that A, we're standing on the shoulders of others. There have been some that have come before us if we think long and hard about it. And also it's our responsibility to reach back and pull others with us. And those others don't necessarily have to look like you, but to be that beacon, that example for others. And so when I think about, you know, the importance of not letting the critics dissuade you or put you in a period of feeling some sort of imposter syndrome about the work that you're doing or what you think you want to do. It can be challenging because we have this self-talk that goes on all the time, you know, and I think everyone's affected by imposter syndrome, but women more so and marginalized people as in black and brown people, even more so than that. But to be able to understand where it's coming from, to me, that's what's important. And then, yeah, moving forward regardless, right? So, you know, uh, there's a quote, and I know I'm going to get it wrong by Martin Luther King, where he says, you know, you, you see the stairwell, you just have to take one step at a time, even though you don't necessarily know where it's going, you have to have the faith to do it. I know I slaughtered that, but hopefully the listeners understand what I'm saying here is sometimes you have to take that first step without knowing what's going to happen next. But to give yourself that courage, that little boost of energy to say, wow, I did that. And it wasn't so scary. And the bottom didn't fall out. And guess what? No one's saying anything (laughs) that's going to empower you to do it again. And that's really, you know, kind of the trick behind that quote is to to understand that. It's just you got to move forward and you got to prove yourself right. It's not about worrying about what everyone else is saying. It's about what you know is inside of you. And once you've given yourself that little check mark, it's going to empower you and encourage you to do it again and again. Wow, that is inspirational. Thank you so much for that. I, you know, I can't, that's one of the things I keep talking about. We talk about allyship as women. I think the first where it starts with, each other, you know, can we be better allies of each other before we go ask for our male colleagues and counterparts to be allies? I mean, let's, let's be better allies together first. Yeah. Cause trust me, they're watching us. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like if you can't get along, then why should we be getting along with you? So I think, I feel like that's really so poignant. So thank you for the, making that point. Um, moving on to the next question, you know, to live your best life, you know, what was the one thing you had to stop doing to make room for the blessings and success that followed? Definitely self-doubt. Honestly, Audra, I had to get out of my own way. You know, when I had that conversation with my son and my husband about leaving corporate, 
starting my own business, not wanting to be miserable when I wake up at 50 and I'll be 52 next month. I'm not sure when this podcast is coming out. My birthday's in February. So for me, it was about, again, taking that first step and trusting myself and knowing that the things that people saw in me that I didn't even see in myself, I had to tap into that, right? I had to see myself through their eyes. And I'm like, Tina, you're a baddie. Like, you can do this, <laughs> right? Like, trust yourself. And guess what? If you make a mistake, no one's going to know except you, right? And if you do, guess what? Move on. The world doesn't end, right? You're going to wake up and get to do it all over again tomorrow. So I had to give myself that self-talk and I had to tap into my resource. My husband's a huge, huge supporter of mine. So I, he and I did an interview a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I was like, I love the way he loves me because he has really empowered me in ways that if, if he wasn't my partner, I don't know that I'll be doing what I'm doing right now. Cause there are days when I want to bang my head against the wall. He's like, you got this. Like, do you know who you are? <laughs> right. So to have that champion in your corner and my son as well, rooting me on, tell me how, all the time, how proud he is of me. It's just amazing. And, and then again, just you got to have that inside yourself too, right? You can't always depend on others. Some people don't have that support system or that board of directors, I call it. You don't have that board of directors. Tap into it for yourself because it's in there. We were all born with a purpose and a destiny. And sometimes we get put off by things that have happened in life. Like I could have gotten put off by being a victim, you know, being in foster care. Let that be my path, right? Or an excuse for me not to pursue. But I said, no, I know that there's greatness in me and I just have to tap into it. Ooh, you could have this conversation all day. I love it. <laughs> I love it. You know, it's talking about, you know, what's in front of you is far greater than what's behind you. And you're just like, you're just living that out every day. I love it. Oh my goodness. Oh, that just got me so excited. No, thank you. <laughs> and for our listeners who do not know, Tana's being very humble, but her husband is Dana Dane, the classic hip hop artist. Um, you know, from back in the day, still doing his thing. So, I mean, she's being a little humbled about that. She's married to a celebrity. <laughs> so we expected her to become a celebrity in return. So that was to be expected, Tana, right? I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next question. Um, you've got this new book coming out, you know, called, I mean, so excited about it. I Audience, if you have not pre-ordered your copy, let me tell you, you need to do it today. The book is called Working While Black, A Woman's Guide to Stop Being the Best Kept Secret. Can you tell us about the book and you know, get where our listeners can get their pre-ordered copy? Yes. So first they can get their pre-ordered copy on my website, Tana M Session, that's T-A-N-A-M for Marie, S-E-S-S-I-O-N.com. And there's a pop-up where they can do the pre-order there. So this book I'm really excited about. I mean, I've been excited about each of my books thus far, but this, first of all, was the biggest project I've ever done. It took me a year to complete it. I was able to interview some phenomenal women in their own rights in regards to what their experience has been like as Black women in corporate America. I've shared my own story in terms of what that path has been like for me for those 20 plus years that I was in it as well. And what were some of the strategies that we put in place to get beyond it? Because I didn't want this to be a woe is me book. I wanted it to be, here's my story. Here's what I found that I needed to fix for myself, where I went wrong. Here are the things that I know were going against me. And here were the strategies I put in place to navigate through it, to keep going. I was fortunate enough to be able to also interview 
Swati Mandela. She is the granddaughter of Nelson and Winnie Mandela. And she's sharing her perspective as a Black woman, because I wanted a global aspect to this to see, is this just a U.S. thing? Well, it's not. <laughs> because she was educated, you know, in England and, you know, went into corporate in England in the PR business. And she had her own experiences there. And she shared them with me for the first time ever sharing her story. And I tied it to, I have this trademark proprietary coaching program that I put my private clients through called Stop Being the Best Kept Secret. And I tied it back to the pillars of that, which is each of us describe what it took for us to learn how to own our power, our truth, our healing, our worth, and ultimately our destiny. And so that's how the book is kind of segmented out between interviews with what were the strategies in each of those pillars that we realized either in the moment or hindsight looking back that we had to pull from within in order to give us the power to keep going. So I'm really excited about this book and the release date is yet to be announced. I'm speaking with publisher tomorrow. So hopefully I can get them on the mat with that, but really, really excited about this book. Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. I cannot (laughs) wait for this book to come out. I mean, this is really going to help a lot of women navigate, you know, their next in their life. And, and I love that. I love what you said, own your power, your truth and your destiny. Yes. And your healing and your worth. Yes. Yeah, and your worth. Oh my goodness. It's going to be good for the male allies too. They need to read this book. <laughs> exactly, right? Because we need their allyship so that we can see ourselves moving forward, advancing, thriving, and getting to owning our true power. Wow. I, that's just, oh, I cannot wait. So if you guys, <laughs> listeners, if you didn't get that again, it's Tana, T-A-N-A-M-S-E. E-S-S-I-O-N.com. Make sure you go order that, pre-order that book, Working While Black, A Woman's Guide to Stop Being the Best Kept Secret. That is phenomenal. Thank you. I, you know, I could talk to you all day, but I know, you know, your time is money. So let me, let me, <laughs> let me wrap this up with one last question. You know, undoubtedly, you've had this tremendous amount of success over your career and, and I celebrate you and your success. I'm I'm a woman who loves to see women succeed because I feel like that gives me hope that I too can succeed. So Mm -hmm. absolutely. But I know beyond the limelight, you know, you're most proud of being a spouse, a parent, you know, what do you want your legacy to be that your family remembers you the most for? Oh yeah. Well, I did last year, late uh, December, 2020, I started a foundation that's actually called from foster care to fabulous foundation. And what we're doing with that foundation um, is myself, my husband, and my son. So they're my board members until I bring on new ones. But for now, what we're doing is we are partnering with foster care agencies in Los Angeles, New York, and Atlanta to provide financial assistance to foster parents who take in newborns through four years old. So again, an ode to the foster parents that took me in during that age gap. And that's, as I said, the formative years for a child, you can imagine taking in a newborn and raising them until they're almost four, four years old. So we're providing financial grants, very easy application process. The website is from fostercaretofabulousfoundation.com and a simple application. And we just verify everything with your social worker or the agency. And within 48 hours of approval, you have your funds. So that to me, and I told my son when I formed this and we sat down as a family and talked about it. And I said, this is going to be my legacy and you're going to be responsible for keeping this long after I'm gone to keep it going and the integrity of the mission and the purpose. And he's on all on board for it. So to me, that's the biggest piece of legacy outside of the work that I do with companies. I feel like I definitely leave a legacy with every company I've worked with 
There are things that I've put in place that are still there, people I hired that are still there, people I've trained that you know moved up in their careers as a result of, of me pouring into them. That's a different legacy. But to me, this is really personal and from the heart and definitely something that you know my family's name can be behind. Wow. Well, let's just hope that that legacy lasts for many, many, many generations. And I'm yes, so excited. Like the Rockefellers. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. I want people talking about this 500 years from now. That's right. Okay. Well, you know, we are at the end of our podcast. I want to thank the phenomenal, fabulous, powerful Dr. Tana M. Session. You brought the truth today. <laughs> Woo! And you left us with some inspiration and motivation. We've got to get on our game, right? Women, we've got to catch up here. Thank you so much, Floss, my ready crew, for another fantastic conversation. I also want to give a big thank you to our listeners globally. We so appreciate your support. We've been downloading over 54 countries, and you know we recognize that um, you can be listening to anything. So we appreciate you taking time out to listen to the Diversity Deep Dive. In the words of Audre Lorde, it is not our differences that divide us. It is our inability to recognize, accept, and celebrate those differences. Remember, when we celebrate diversity and inclusion, we celebrate humanity. Be sure to spread the word by tagging our hashtag diversity deep dive podcast and know that real diversity happens when everyone is actively engaged and working together for a positive change. Let's keep the conversation going. Please download more episodes of the diversity deep dive podcast until next time, seek out ways to make a positive difference in your world, workplace and community. 